Welcome to Sing, Dance, Act, Thrive, featuring conversations with performing artists and industry influencers on what it takes to succeed in the arts. I am your host, Diane Foy, and I believe that you really can make a living from your creative talents. As a publicist, podcaster, and coach, my mission is to educate, motivate, and empower you to thrive with authenticity, creativity, and purpose. Hello, and welcome to episode number 29 of Sing, Dance, Act, Thrive. I'm so excited for today's guest. She is Canada's punk rock queen, Biff Naked. I've been a fan of hers since her 1996 self-titled debut album and her follow-up, I Bifficus, with the hits Daddy's Getting Married, Spaceman, and Moment of Weakness. In 2001, her album Purge, produced by Desmond Child, had even more hits, including I Love Myself Today, Choking on the Truth, and one of my favorites, Tango Shoes. The albums and tours continued, and in 2011, she released Biff Naked Forever, Acoustic Hits and Other Delights, and in 2016, she released her autobiography, I Bificus. In the book, she shares her journey from being born in secret to a teenager living in India, the product of a Canadian girl and a British boy. She was rejected by both families, hidden away in a mental hospital, and adopted by missionaries. They moved to North America, and she began what she recalls with ironic humor, a charmed life. Targeted by girl gangs and facing other abusive situations, she escaped this early life by joining a punk rock band, leaving on tour, where she married the drummer and hit a downward spiral that found her on the floor of a Vancouver drug den. Through it all, her creative personality and unstoppable humor were her weapons of self-defense. Biff showcased her life's journey in tattoo ink across her body, and with her unique ability to transform her true life stories into song lyrics. She found her voice as a solo artist, started her own record label, and at 23 years old, became an international recording artist. Throughout her remarkable career, armed with her singular talent and instantly identifiable look, Biff would captivate the imagination of audiences and media alike, releasing nine albums and 21 videos. She embarked on seemingly endless international tours, several feature films and multiple television roles, only to be struck down with breast cancer at the age of 37. Biff would discover her passion for advocacy as a triumphant survivor and someone who helps others first. When I first started this podcast, she was on my wish list of people I wanted on the show. So when I got the opportunity, I jumped at it. She now lives in Toronto, so her publicist, Eric Alper, asked if I wanted to go to her house for the interview. I did a little fangirl dance. Um, yes. Yes. I, I would really like that. <laughs> I love her. So, of course, she was fabulous, and we are best friends now. So I know that you'll enjoy our fantastic conversation. 
Hello. 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 Welcome. Thank um, you. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, this is exciting. I've been looking forward to it. Cool. Um, so what are you working on these days? Well, I don't know. Like a lot of people, I guess I do a lot of different things. So uh, we started making a new record last fall and then kind of finished it up, finished our recording in the spring. And we've been doing mixes and everything all summer long. And so we're getting ready to drop a single, as it is commonly called. Um, and it's exciting. I really like the new songs. They're um, hopefully an evolution from the last stuff that I was writing. Uh, so that's really something that we've been looking forward to for a really long time. Um, I've been writing a book about cancer for three years. Mostly I want to stab my eyes out with big pens. <laughs> Anyone knows what a big pen is? It's not pleasant to stab in your eye. Um, but I took a break from it because I was just getting kind of um, lost in the weeds, I call it. I just get just kind of lost in the research. I'm not a researcher. I'm right. just, uh, so then when I got bored, I decided I should write a book of poetry, which I finished in June. And so we've just been assembling that and hoping we went for our uh, pitches this week. So cool. uh, yeah, it's exciting. So when you do a book of poetry, do you, do you collect from things you've written over the years? Or some did of them you start were. From scratch? Yeah, some of them were. And, uh, you know, uh, I was kind of like, not, I, I was fine with it because I think basically poetry is actually garbage, you know, in, in the world. Anyone can put out a book of poetry. Right. These days, you can self-publish. Your poetry can be just absolute, like just shite. It can be lousy, and but it's poetry to you, or it's poetry to the reader who likes it, because it's almost like, uh, in a way, it's a bit abstract, you right? Know? Um, so I was, I was kind of good about it until we sent it out. And of course, then I'm horrified. So now I'm horrified because I think it's too edgy. You can't write poems about lakes of blood. You can't really, you know, <laughs> these things will upset people. So I've been second guessing it for a week. But that's just, you know, the regular fear based stuff that most artists have when they when they put themselves out into the world. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you already put yourself out there with the book, with yeah. your memoir. You kind of put everything out there then in in your songwriting. So yes, definitely I guess it's a similar thing with poetry. Yeah, it must be. I guess yeah. I've just never really done it before. I had a spoken word record that came out in 19, I'm going to guess, I'm going to say 97. And it was just, again, it was just garbage. It was just <laughs> shite. But it made me laugh. And all my friends laugh. And it, I think it, I don't even know if it ever sold any copies. You know, it was in the 90s. Uh, it wasn't uh, that well received. And I just had, I did not care. I was so not self-aware, did not care, loved it anyway. Still laugh every time I listen to it without any self-consciousness. Um, but yeah, the poetry stuff is really kind of emotional and it's a bit vulnerable. So, And also I'm older, I'm in a different place in my life. So I find that that's brought with it a lot of different, um, I guess, feelings surrounding my work. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so what first drew you to performing and music? Um, you know, I was an arts kid that my parents put me in arts festivals when I was little. So spoken poetry, spoken French poetry, um, piano recitals and dance. I started ballet when I was probably about four and that was it. You know, my, 
uh, had a ballet instructor, I think, in my first or second year that was a goddess. She may as well have just been like she was an angel. And I just wanted to be a ballerina. That's all I wanted to be uh, up until I was probably 17 and old enough to smoke cigarettes and get tattoos and wear leather jackets. All the things ballerinas are not supposed to do. Terrible, (laughs) just an awful little rebel. And, uh, And I really accidentally fell into music. I was in theater and in Uh, drama courses in high school and I thought that I wanted to be in musical theater for sure because it had a dance aspect and I went to high school in Winnipeg Uh, University of Winnipeg had a great theater program Uh, they have a program there called the Prairie uh, Theater Exchange which had a musical theater program and I was going for that and just kind of basically met these guys who had a band and literally it was that simple and you sing growing up Never, never. Not a, not a note, <laughs> not a note. I mean, I'm an alto, you know, like my speaking voice, but, and again, the first band I was in was kind of like a punk band. So, you know, honestly, it didn't take a lot of skill, let's yeah. be, you know, so I could kind of wing it. And over time, it just, I was just really, I found it, it was a vehicle for my writing. It was a vehicle for poetry, uh, to turn it into lyrics. And uh, it was a great fit for me. I loved it. I don't think it's for everyone. And touring certainly in the 90s was not for the faint of heart. Um, But I'm glad that that's all I've ever done. Yeah, yeah. Uh, What drew you to punk music? Uh, The boys. You know, those those, (laughs) those terrible, yes. And uh, and it was a good fit for me. I mean, a lot of their uh, content, uh, um, song content was really political. And it was a lot of protest music. And that was something that resonated with me anyway. It's just kind of like, you know, my parents were uh, socialists and they were um, civil rights activists in the States. And the whole social justice thing always appealed to me a lot. So it was a really good fit. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And who were some of the bands that you first started touring with or that inspired you? I think when I was very young, I was into all the bands that I started playing with more than anything else. So I was into, thank you, I have bad mic technique after all these years. I was into, um, I was into bands like uh, DOA was one of the first bands that we ever opened for. And of course, DOA. oh, cool. And so, yeah. Joe Keithley, uh, who was the singer then and is now Joey Shithead, as he's known, um, was a real, you know, probably unbeknownst to him, was just a huge influence on me. I just thought, you know, his his stuff was just so political and it was so smart and I agreed with everything he said and he was just so confident. He just stood up there and he just played the guitar and sang. And then we toured with a band called The Wongs that featured Chai Pig from SNFU. And so being on tour, especially on my first tour, um, really influenced me more than anything else because I was faced with, you know, the daunting road and, and losing your voice as a vocalist and having to deal with a lot of animosity from the audience that really just wanted to see Chai Pig and The Wongs. They didn't really want me in front of them uh i was a girl a and b it was just all you know show us your tits or whatever back then you know we didn't care we just like fought them or you know were more aggressive now of course in this day and age you know the show gets stopped if anyone says anything like that 
I wouldn't stop my show personally. Uh, cause you know, I consider myself a little more resilient than that, but, um, things have changed a lot since I first started. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how has your music changed over the years? Well, hopefully it's, it's evolved. The sound has evolved as I've kind of grown up. Um, I kind of turned into a solo artist after I, uh, left my first two bands. Um, and I, because I'm a lyricist, I've never played an instrument. So I've always co-written with everybody, whether it's, you know, four people in my band or, or whether it was with one guy who, who was the producer. My first record was, uh, produced by a guy named John Dexter, who at the time had Plum Records and Johnny Jet Records was his original label name. And he had bands like the West End Girls. You know, it was like a, a lot of pop stuff. And so for him to to sit down and co-write with Biff Naked was a, a really great opportunity for me because I could kind of do just about anything. And so we really crossed, I, bet, I guess, crossed genres on the first record. And it was really eclectic. Uh, it was detrimental in a way because I couldn't get a record deal. Right. When I was 24 at all, no one knew what to do with me. And in Canada, they were like, yeah, this chick will never get on the radio. Um, so my manager just said, yeah, you just, well, we're going to start your own record company. Cause yeah. you know, none of these, none of these guys will sign you. And these days it's kind of what you have to do anyways. Yeah. Um, it's pretty funny. I mean, yeah. Having, having the company since 94, I mean, I've seen it all, you know, I've kind of, we've put out other bands, also and that's its own blessing uh, but it's also quite a curse uh, because you know it really depends on who you work with but what it did do is enable me to just keep make, putting my records out and uh, keeping them as eclectic as I wanted them to be having that creative control right. and you know I don't understand these uh, artists today like I've always owned my masters you know and now it doesn't matter yeah. <laughs> now they're like kind of in a way they're kind of worthless so i don't really know why well, maybe for like people fight over them maybe i guess so i mean we've always licensed our record so yeah. in in every country so it's just you know it should be easier than i think a lot of artists make it and uh you know i'm from the generation that still works on a handshake half the time Right. And uh, it's just it's just so much fun. It's still such a challenge, but it's still really rewarding. Yeah. As having your own label, when things changed and went towards downloading and streaming, mm-hmm. were you a company that embraced that or fought against it like most of the major labels? Well, because we were always indie, it didn't really affect us, to be honest with you. Right. Anything that would... Uh, and allow people to discover us more easily was a good thing. Yeah. But also, like, you know, people forget, well, especially young people, because they weren't around. But Napster started affecting everybody in, like, the mid-90s. Yeah. So it's something that we've always kind of had to face. And we had to face it and, you know, adapt all along. We've had to just adapt and carry on. So... Um, things have changed a lot since I first started. And now, yeah, now you can't sell CDs at shows. You know, really, no one has a no CD player. Yeah. They don't. And they don't understand why you would sell them. So I have to call them car CDs. Yeah. Basically, and sign them, you know, but they're still not really worth anything. Yeah. And, and in hindsight, I think, well, God, you know, it's not like they biodegrade. Yeah. You know, so I don't really want to make anymore anyway, because yeah. what am I really like? 
why am I going to make this thing in a plastic case? You know, like, yeah. So it's just things have changed a lot in that way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I miss the physical part of it. it, Yes. I just thought of it the other day that I miss reading credits. Yes. I loved writing them. Yeah. And because that would be my thing. First thing you do before you even get to listen to it. I would, it got me to know the songwriters when names came up over and over again. Yes. you know, if there is liner notes, you oh get to yeah, know from the artist, absolutely, it yeah, all that, yeah. And now it's like you can't even see it. Like even exactly. on Spotify, I'm like, yeah, that's it. That's the credits. So okay, yeah, it's, it's a bit, yeah, it's different. <laughs> it's definitely different. And that tactile thing was really great. And yeah, writing liner notes was, you know, also part of you know a person's art and a part of the artist's message. Yeah. Uh, so in a way, that's sad, but. Now they get to write liner notes every day, you know, on Instagram. Social media, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Do you love social media? Yeah, I do. You know, I think it's really great. Yeah, I've never, uh, I've never really understood why it's negative. Um, You know, a lot of people kind of think it's super negative. I've always found it absolutely fun and funny um, because you, you can't take it that seriously. Yeah, You know, there's a lot of people who take it very seriously, who get into arguments and all this stuff. And I just, I just kind of have never been that person. It's just that, that would stress me out. (laughs) I would never argue with anybody. So I was like, oh, all right, no problem. And, you know, shut your computer off. It's so easy. Yeah. Um, But I really enjoy it. I think it's a great way for bands to tell fans where they're playing and, and tell fans, you know, what's important to them. It's a great way to use your your social media platform to help, you know, lesser bands, lesser known bands, help charities, you know, yeah. stuff like that. And, of course, to help animal rescues, yeah. <laughs> which I like doing. So it's like, yeah, I think it's really fantastic. You know, we live in amazing times. Yeah, I do find I'm always surprised when I work with artists that are reluctant to even do social media. Yes, I and come I'm across like, that a lot. I was like, but you're, you're young. Like, isn't that your thing? Yeah. But Uh, you're texting. Yeah. Don't you text? It's the same thing. And it's also like, well, if this is what you want to do for a living. Yes. (laughs) If you don't want to be self tours and all that, go for it. But you kind of have to. And I think it's just, I always just relate it to, you know, I'm working at putting myself out there more too. So I'm with you. Sure. Yeah. we got to do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it is interesting. And there's a lot of people who are able to make a living by offering to do social media for other people. Yeah. Uh, which is its own industry now, which really yeah. is fascinating. And it's a real. Um, Have you ever done that? Had someone else work your social media? Never. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, when I think that I remember being on MySpace a little bit. I didn't get a computer till uh, I think it was 2006. Wow. So I wasn't that savvy, uh, certainly at, at MySpace. I can barely remember it. Um, but there, you used to be able to have conversations with fans periodically, I believe. And then I remember the year Twitter came out, uh, someone from our record company basically installed Twitter on my BlackBerry. I had a BlackBerry at the time, no computer. And they said, you have to do Twitter. And I was like aghast. Like, I couldn't believe, what are you talking about? Like, what do you mean I have to do this? What do I do? Yeah. And they're like texting. And I was like, I don't text. I don't understand. 
And so in the beginning, I mean, you know, I used to do like yoga on Twitter, like raise your arms over your head. And then the next tweet would be take a breath and hold it in. Like literally did not know what I was doing. And and it was so funny because at the time I was going through breast cancer treatment. So this is like 2009. So I had done all my chemo already. Uh, I had just finished radiation. I think I was getting an oophorectomy, but I was still involved in the cancer hospital a lot with volunteering and going to an exercise group that was all breast cancer patients. Uh, So I would always refer to this every time I attended it and I would wind up tweeting that out. And that's really slowly how I I kind of built a following that had nothing to do with music. Yeah. And I mean, I remember being on Twitter and having like 300 followers or 5,000 followers. Like, you know, it was a long time ago. It was a decade ago. Yeah. It takes a long time, but you just kind of have to like keep doing it. And it doesn't matter if anyone, you think nobody's listening that doesn't matter. Yeah. You just have to do it anyway. It's such a great way to connect. Yes, it, it is. There's like no barrier now between artists That's and right. the general public and their fans. It's Absolutely. Like the cool thing about Twitter is yes. sometimes a famous person will tweet you back. You know? That's right. It's like, yes, I found that as well. Yeah. And, uh, and with Twitter particularly, a lot of people I know who are on Instagram or who didn't really get on social media until Instagram always developed. They're not on Twitter at all. Yeah, and they don't too. like it. And they find it like, I don't know, uh, some something like obscene about it. I always say the audiences are very different. Yeah. Uh, and I find the same thing is true on Facebook. When I did the Welfare Food Challenge in Vancouver, um, just to, to help out uh, a couple organizations, all of the negative comments I got always were on Facebook. Yeah. And nowhere else. And I mean, there may have been a smattering, but. Usually on Facebook, I find if I post a, if I repost a dog charity, uh, literally, I might get, literally, I might get maybe 20 likes on right. something like that and no comments. If I post a show, I might get a couple comments. But when I did the Welfare Food Challenge, I got 400 comments, all of them negative, And they were all about the poor. And they were all bashing the poor. And it was so revealing to me. I thought I couldn't believe it. I guess because Facebook is so in people's spaces, but it's also there's no word limit. I guess so. so oh, yeah. It was just within. astonishing. And I just I remember just like, you know, uh, as we are wont to do, we talk to our computer screen. And I remember just being credulous, just going, I can see your name like how can your your neighbors can see that yeah. you've said this terrible thing, you know? And it wouldn't even, it, it was just like, it was astonishing. It baffles my mind, but I guess I think that they must just not, they must be okay with what they're Precisely, they absolutely, right. precisely. <laughs> they and, don't see the, what you're what Yeah, you're and I find the same thing is true for anything political in any way. And yeah. uh, and social justice or, or doing anything, you know, for the... Uh, for the benefit of of the poor or the uh, you know the the people on social assistance in this society, it, it always just attracts a lot of hate mail, is what I call it, and and that really is very telling about the world we live in, which yeah. is just yeah, it blows my mind. Have you ever got negative comments about your music? You all the time, yeah. 
All the time. I used <laughs> Do you to read that. <laughs> um, lots of the time, I can't help it because I'm on there. Yeah. Uh, but back in the in the day, it was usually like someone would write into the magazine with their comments or to right. the newspaper we were in, and I and still to this day, still to this day, twenty years later, I still remember these two girls from. Um, I think it was, uh, yeah, that was in Chicago. We were playing at the House of Blues, I believe. And they were just, they hated my liner notes. Literally, it was about my liner notes and the cartoons that I always drew. And they were just on and on. They had uh, written into a radio station that I was doing an interview on. And they were just terrible. They were like, this is, she is just a loser. And she's so self-deprecating and we're feminists and she's not feminist. She's just self-deprecating. And it was just, it was stupid. It was actually insipid what they were saying. They were, yeah. you know, a couple of, you know, privileged college girls or whatever my imagination tells me that they were. And it still bothers me. And yeah. I'm like, why does this even <laughs> bother me? You know, but it still does. And it's so funny um, because again, they were just, they're entitled to their feelings. That's yeah. it. That's the, they really are. I'm always like, well, isn't there bigger things in the world? Precisely. <laughs> yes, there are. Yes. That chick that wrote something in the liner notes right? that I don't agree it's with. It's just like, yeah, it's so funny. Wow. Mm-hmm. But I th- I'm sure that everyone feels that way. I mean, when you talk to any artist uh, of any caliber at all, they're, they're always going to remember those those things because ultimately we are all eight years old yeah and something that hurts our feelings still hurts our feelings regardless of how mature we are or you know how far advanced in our age or our careers it doesn't matter yeah it still hurts sure so you've had the same manager for 30 years yes i have and how has that relationship maintained like how have you managed to have a good relationship after all these years? Well, you know, I know a lot of other artists uh, who've been in the business, you know, 20 years, 25 years. Many of them are hugely successful people. Some of them have had five managers mm-hmm. over the trajectory of their career or 10. And, uh, and you know, I always, uh, I always marvel at that. I think in many uh, situations, it's probably very warranted. For me, you know, the priority for me has always been the same things. I just wanted to work hard and uh, and have hard have hard work, you know, to to work at. Um, when Peter started managing me, I was in a band called Chrome Dog, and he originally approached Chrome Dog to manage us. And at the time, he was managing Annihilator, and. Uh, and rhymes with orange in Canada and a couple other artists as well. And so he managed Chrome Dog. And of course, you know, it was a volatile relationship. I guess things happen with bands and bands break up rightly or wrongly. And so we did break up. And then I was horrified because I thought, well, that's it. I have to go back to university now. You know, my career is over. I'm done. Yeah, Yeah, I think I was 22 at the time. And it wasn't too late for me to, you know, reapply for uh, my, you know, what, fine arts degree or whatever I thought I could do. And Peter just kind of was really calm. And he said, well, you know, take a couple of days to, to really think about it. But I think you should be a solo artist 
And, uh, and I think that you can do that. You're, you know, if you want to do that, I think that's what we should do. So, you know, get back to me in a couple of days. You really think about it. Talk to your parents or whoever, you know, you have to talk to, run it up the flagpole, yeah. you know, of your people. And, uh, and I, it was no question. I was just like, I have a hundred percent faith in you. And that was it. And I thought at that moment, uh, I just thought I can either have faith in this person to do their job because I know that I'm going to do mine, uh, or I can be wishy-washy about it. Uh, and, you know, kind of always be kind of like suspicious or always keep looking for, you know, a better opportunity or whatever people mislead themselves into thinking that they're going to find, maybe they do, but I just made that commitment early on. And I, you know, I'm a notorious non-confrontationalist anyway. Everybody knows it, um, except on stage, of course. Um, but it just has always worked out, you know, and, uh, and our relationship has changed a lot over the years. You know, it's been, you know, some years have been really kind of weird and some years have been just so much work that nobody could see straight. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, his, you know, his, his daughters are my goddaughters. Yeah. You know, and uh, I, I'm friends with all his, the wives he's had. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just like, it's funny. And, and uh, when I married Snake, in 2016, Peter gave me away at my wedding. Yeah. You know, because my father's passed away and really that's kind of the role that he has in my life. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you you said you were starting to manage artists yourself? Well, you, you know, something. Yeah, no, I've never really thought about it before this year. But uh, since I've moved to Toronto, you know, I just think that uh, as I get older, I kind of think, you know, am I going to want to? be the one on tour all the time or am I going to want to mentor younger acts and younger bands? And I've been a tour manager for a long time. I've always tour managed my own band and it's something that's very natural for me. Uh, just having all the experience that I do. So I think that, yeah, management is definitely the direction I want to go in. Yeah. You know, eventually. Right. right. Uh, as a full-time thing. And what kind of artists would you be looking for? Anything. Yeah. The ones that the ones that are honest and work hard. And yeah, artists, I mean, even when we had Her Royal Majesty's Records in full swing where we were signing other acts, um, you know, ultimately I could always take these acts on tour with me and it would I would always became the vehicle for those acts to be launched and it was a, a great way to launch bands. Ultimately, it was, you know, you always run across people who are disappointing in some regard or manner where they, you know, they they signed a contract with you, but they want to break it if you don't, you know, literally buy them a tour bus before they've ever recorded a note of music right. or, or something as preposterous. So to manage expectations. Yeah, and that's something that and people are very... Yeah, some of these artists are, you know, they should really be insurance brokers or some other career because yeah. <laughs> they'll never be happy yeah. as artists. So that's what I try to get across in mentoring it in the podcast yes. is that the work ethic that it takes. That's right. And yeah. the expectations. It's, it's like very hard. And it's hard for uh, an artist to have a supportive partner and supportive friends who just totally get it and you know, understand that it's always going to be a pendulum. It's always going to be just 
outrageously inconvenient because it's a 24 hour a day job. Yeah. You know, ultimately, if you are an artist, you are your job. Yeah. And so you never get an opportunity to leave work at the office. And, uh, and so that means it has to also enter your personal life. And then, yeah, that's a whole other can of worms. And there's a lot of great artists who are kiboshed, you know, um, they, it's not even that they won't get out of their own way, but other people won't. Right. And, uh, and it's just, it's very disheartening to see that in a young artist, you just want to protect them and, and help them out. And yeah, it, it's exciting though. There's no money in it. No, probably. <laughs> But it's exciting. And that's it, and why it it's is, like you got to love it no matter what. And exactly. you have to figure out other ways of making that's money. That's exactly right. Yes. So for you to hopefully do avoid the stuff crime. You hopefully avoid crime. Avoid crime. Um, but, you know, but yeah, there are other ways of figuring out how to make a living or have your side job be something exactly. flexible. Or something that you're also passionate about. Yeah. 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 So if you could go back to your younger self, what advice would you give? Oh, don't get so upset. <laughs> I took everything very personally. I, I think that, uh, you know, it was easy for me as a, just kind of just a sensitive person to, to take things, uh, just hard. I took everything kind of really on the chin and, you know, I have a, a friend now who's 27 and uh, and she's a painter and a, and a writer and she takes things very personally and and uh it's hard for me to you know watch her be hurt all the time because i remember the feeling when i was 27 years old i always felt persecuted yeah you know by whatever it was by boyfriends or by my bandmates or by my girlfriends who just didn't understand that I was only in town for a show day and I couldn't stop the sound check to go to dinner or right. whatever the case, you know, I think that um, being more just kind of easygoing and not getting rattled by anything uh, yeah. would have served me very well. Yeah, definitely. I learned that there's a thing called highly sensitive person. Interesting. Say, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I think I was going through stuff and i've discovered that that that's an actual thing Interesting, highly yes. sensitive person yes um and i'm like yeah that's me yeah <laughs> i think that i think that a lot of artists can probably relate to that yeah it even said like a lot of artists mm, are kind of known as being that mm -hmm. just because we put ourselves out there that's like, right and because of, especially if if your art is an expression of yourself. That's right. So if people judge your art, yep. it's like... Oh. They're judging us. That's <laughs> yeah. exactly correct. Yeah, it's yeah. very tough. It's not for everybody. No, and you have to have thick skin and yes. uh, have a never-give-up attitude. That's right, and a great sense of humor. Yeah, that helps. Yes. <laughs> you got to make fun of yourself. Yeah. Um, so you did some acting at different mm -hmm. times. Is that something that you still are interested in, or what... Uh, yeah, you know, I think that, to that when you were in some shows and well, for, films for me, I think because I was a drama kid, um, I always had that, uh, I guess, um, you know, desire and curiosity in me being um, a recording artist. I would often just the roles just always came across my manager's desk, but they were always for singers or they were for strippers. 
or they were for junkies. It was like always the same, always the same, always the same. Um, and so I was never that interested in doing those uh, because I thought that's a no brainer. Like, you know, it's not a stretch. Right. I wanted to do something that was a stretch. And uh, the first feature film I did um, was where I got to play a hippie girl. And for me, I thought that was more of a stretch. And so it was called Lunch with Charles. And uh, and the film was just really the greatest cast and crew. It, they were very nurturing. It was a great introduction into uh, being on a film set. Um, but I didn't like it. I had two little dogs and I couldn't bring them to set. I had a Maltese that never stopped barking. So he right. could not be on set. He could not be in the trailer. It wouldn't work. And the whole time I was on set, I just wanted to be with Your my dog. <laughs> so it didn't, it, the timing really was very difficult for me. And I didn't have, I, I just always felt guilty. I always wanted to be with a dog. So it really took away. And then the second time we accepted a role was for uh, an indie film called The Crossing, where I got to play a drag king. And that was very interesting for me. Uh, so I wanted to do that role. I got weapons training firearms training. I got to do martial arts. It was all the things that I was wanting to do. But again, I just wanted to be with the dog. So it, film sets in me didn't really work out when my dogs were still alive anyway. Right. Um, but yeah, and theater, I think, is probably a better fit for me anyway. Um, but I like it all, you know. I think that any aspect of performing is going to definitely be something that resonates with what I like doing. Right, right. Have you done theater? Uh, not in a long time. Yeah. Yeah, not in a long time. Certainly not since I've moved to Toronto. Yeah. Not yet. Not yet. No. Cool one-woman show. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> then you can do everything that you love to exactly. do. Exactly. Well, Snake and I have a, an acoustic show, which is what we had to develop around book readings. Right. Um, just because book readings just don't really pay. No. So we developed an acoustic show where I would read a story from the memoir and then we would play the relevant song from the repertoire. And it, it turned into a, a really fun three-hour show. And he gets to drink wine and I get to abuse him on stage <laughs> and uh, and make fun of being married a lot of times. And, and it's just really, it, it became something that was almost in the end kind of became a bit of a play. Right. Uh, so that's something that was very enjoyable. And so when you're young and you're playing a lot of punk bands, I'm guessing most of them were male bands, male crews on tour. Um, and then you started touring with Lilith Fair. How was that transition? How was it different working with all women? Well, Lilith Fair was an amazing opportunity for me, especially at that time. It was 1999. And I think that we were going back and forth between touring with the cult in America and then doing the Lilith Fair dates. And Sarah McLaughlin is uh, such a warm and genuinely nice person. She was nice to every artist that was on her tour, personally thanked everybody for, for doing her shows. And, and really that experience for me was unlike anything I'd ever been on. Uh, so I learned a lot from that. And, uh, uh, it was kind of a, a bit of a sorority in a way. But, you know, I always felt my sorority was the Luna Chicks 
and was L7 and was, uh, you know, bands that were harder and more into what I was into, you know, kind of. Uh, so it was nice for me to meet all these women um, who were just like genuinely nice people. Yeah, definitely. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And was, I guess, is the backstage environment different? Very much so. I mean, you know, but also because I'm a girl, you know, the backstage at a Biff Naked show is nothing like backstage at Motley Crue. Yeah. You know, there's not girls backstage at my shows unless they're like 15 and, and want their record signed. Yeah. You know, it, so I, I kind of was always exempt from that t- type of backstage environment anyway. Yeah. Um, except in the situations where we would be touring with all these guy bands. And then that was just always the debauchery. Um, but I went to bed, you know, I was, a you know, as a lead vocalist, I couldn't drink alcohol. I couldn't talk after the show. I had to just basically go back to my prison, yeah, which was my bunk. <laughs> um, but a lot of times I brought my dogs on tour. So then I just would, you know, go and hang out with them for the rest of the night anyway. Uh, so I didn't, you know, I didn't really get too much um, opportunity to participate in all the fun that I was missing out on, which was usually potato chips and drinking, you know, like, <laughs> let's be honest, like, you know, the, the band has to travel. So it's not like they could stay in the four seasons hotel and have a, yeah. have a party every night. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned along the way in performing and also with connecting with an audience? Um, I think that I'm still learning lessons all the time when it comes to performing. Uh, Pacing yourself at a show is always uh, something that you can learn only from experience. And, uh, And that's usually hard because the first time you go out into your stage, the first five minutes of the show, you're flipping out. Or at least I am, you know, your heart's racing, you're over singing, you're, you know, the adrenaline is really pumping and then you can relax uh, after that initial, you know, adrenaline, fear, shock, whatever uh, passes, then you can relax. And uh, I found that it's never really that different if there's 10 people in the crowd or if you're doing a, a festival in Germany where there's you know, I don't know, 80,000 people, you can't see them all. Yeah. You know, so it's not more scary to do a bigger audience. Um, You know, if you've got an audience there that has all the suits, you know, that you're, you know, trying to impress with its record companies or, or management or whatever the case, that tends to be more nerve wracking and it's hard to do a normal show. Or if, you know, your parents are there then, you know, you're you're not going to, like, write the C word across your chest, you know, for that show or whatever you're doing. But, um, yeah, I think the biggest lesson to learn is always pace yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. right. And what are some ways that you stay healthy and fit on tour? Well, you know, things have changed a lot for me. I think that for the first, I don't know, 15 years, well... I don't know. I think that I didn't know I was anorexic until I was in breast cancer treatment. Um, And that was the first time I was ever off the road in my adult life. So I didn't really know any other way of touring except how we toured. And in the 90s, I mean, there was a lot of pressure on us. We were 
in half tops. I mean, you can, you know, I can't use Gwen Stefani as an example anymore because now she's a TV star. So that's a whole different life. Uh, But, you know, a lot of us were in half tops and it was like, yeah, I, I was a vegan anyway, but, you know, touring is not easy and there's nothing to eat in the nineties for a vegan. Yeah. So, but you can't eat rice, you know, because you'll just have like a rice baby (laughs) in your belly and you're in a half top. So that kind of psychological thing really wore me down and I didn't even notice it. Right. Um, For a long time, I was a raw food vegan and that was just because we just were in Eastern Europe so much. Uh, There was no vegan food really so i would just eat a tomato or eat a banana or and that's kind of how that started um i think that i have always been into fitness and on tour our shows were 90 minutes or more and it's just like being a jumping bean and singing so i I never found that i really uh went to gyms all that frequently but when i was at home i always i've always been a gym rat um all the guys I ever dated, I met in the gym because that's the only place I ever went. I was either on tour in the dog park yeah. or at the gym. But now, you know, as I'm older, I, I just find more of a balance. Um, I always did yoga because it just kind of really calmed my mind. I never did it for fitness. And now I think it's more of a fitness thing for a lot of people, uh, which is fantastic. Um for me, it was just to calm my mind down and, and to kind of relax and find a balance from the stressful right. life that that job can be. Uh, I feel like I've got more of a balance now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you go on tour, you plan ahead, I guess, with your meals. And- no, I no. just totally <laughs> eat potato chips. Okay. Yeah. Doritos makes uh, sweet chili heat is a vegan Doritos. And I curse them <laughs> because my band, of course, are eating like you know, all the delicious junk food that nobody eats at home. Like, we don't even eat like this at home. As soon as we're doing shows, it's like, you know, all bets are off. So, yeah, and vegan, now they have so many vegan snack foods, it's very sad for me. So I tend to eat a lot of, like, potato chips. Um, I take protein shakes. Like, I all take vegan protein shakes. But generally, I just kind of live on almonds and, and salads. Even if it's a Subway salad with mustard, right? I'll eat that. (laughs) It's kind of sad, but it's fun. Yeah. (laughs) What are the biggest lessons you've learned as a creative entrepreneur? Wow. Well, that's a a whole other can of worms. I think that you either are an entrepreneur or you're not. And basically what I mean by that is you're either willing to take a risk or you're going to want to always play it safe, you know, and then this job is not for you. And, And you know, to, to be able to just roll the dice and start a new company or try and, I guess, you know, evolve or have your career morph and evolve. You know, if you work long enough in the business, whether it's the music business or the art world or the entertainment industry in any way, you get to do a lot of different things yeah. because there's lots of different things to do. Um, and you have to really be have a have a level of fearlessness you know and just kind of hope for the best and it's like it's like the song living on a prayer you know you really just have to just 
you're halfway there. You just have to keep going. Yeah. You know, don't stop. Momentum will carry you through. Even if, you know, if you're, you're going to lose it or stumble. You just have to keep going. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that's another thing that a lot of artists don't necessarily embrace when they're like, oh, I want to be a rock star. But right. these days, you have to be an entrepreneur as well. Yes, you do. You can't just wait for that magic label or manager that's, that's gonna exactly like make right. you a star yes and you have to be prepared to never make a cent yeah it's almost like writers used to be um you know and now with you know there are no more there are no more aerosmith style advances right you know for for your record you know it's very difficult now for an artist to get on the radio yeah, You know, and I think that's hard for people to understand because radio has changed. You know, Spotify, it's not just record sales, it's radio. You know, it, it's changed everything for artists and for how artists are valued, how they are uh, embraced by the public. You know, it's, it's really difficult. You have to be really kind of flexible. Yeah. And willing to try anything and everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, moving to Toronto is a big step for you because you've been in Vancouver for so long. What, for what made years. you come to Toronto? Work. Work. Yeah, basically work. And and that's really the truth. Um, you know, all the book publishers are here. Um, and I, well, I shouldn't say that there's a lot of great publishers in Vancouver, too. But at the time that we moved, HarperCollins was my publisher. And uh, a lot of the record companies that we work with are out here. My manager moved out here. You know, it was just a good fit. After Snake and I got married in 2016, uh, he sold his New West apartment. I sold my Vancouver apartment. And we wanted to get something together. And it just made sense to come here. Plus, yeah. it was 30% cheaper. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of the news in the last, I don't know, five years that absolutely the, the prices that are insane in Vancouver and yeah. in Toronto. Yes, they are. Something. Yeah, it's uh, it's astonishing. It really is. But, uh, you know, we have to be willing to do more with less. Yeah. And we have to be willing to, you know, just kind of, you know, be be satisfied and, and take what we can get. And uh and live in smaller places, yeah. You know, in in neighborhoods that make us feel happy and safe. Yeah, that's all. I'm surprised you don't have a dog. Not yet. No, uh, my last little guy passed away ex- almost 30 days before I met Snake. Oh. So when my dog died, uh, my dad was just going into palliative care, and my dog was sick for a couple of years. So it was in a way like a lot of pet owners I know can relate to this. You know, when you've got a sick animal for so long, uh, in a way there's, you know, you're relieved uh, because they're not suffering anymore. But also for me, it gave me the freedom. Suddenly I had this freedom to go stay with my dad and his wife for a month, you know, and to go, you know, my manager and his wife were living in France at the time I went straight to France after that. And it was, you know, suddenly that worry wasn't there anymore. I could go on tour, do Snake and I did two national acoustic tours. Uh, and then we were getting ready to move. So it was like, we don't want to, we don't want to get a dog. Right. And so then we yeah. came here and then we went straight on tour when we arrived. And yeah, just so far it hasn't happened. Yeah. Um, I have a girlfriend who just lost another dog. She always she and her partner always rescue these amazing seniors. 
And, uh, and, and she just said, this is why it's been so hard for you, uh, you know, to, to replace Nick basically. And I I had never really thought about it before. And I went, Oh yeah, kind of, I kind of is, you know, I think that, uh, I do procrastinate a lot about rescuing a dog. Um, but I think it's still, cause I'm still like, I still can't get past it. Yeah. Yeah. So- but I'm able to go and, uh, and do lots of, you know, visits and sanctuary stuff. And yeah, I just, and plus cats, I'm like, you know, I keep teasing snake because I said, you said that when we got married, we would get two cats. So <laughs> there's a lot of cats that need home. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I get that. Because when I lost my cats, there, there was that couple months of like freedom. So I went sure. to visit my mom for a yes, month. Exactly. You know, it's like usually I'd have to limit that to maybe Of weeks. course. Of course. And I was like, yeah, I can go for a month. That's but right. then then you're kind of gun shy. I was kind of gun shy because I yes. had my one cat for almost 19 years. Amazing. And I was just like, I st- even though I'm back with three cats, I'm mm-hmm. like, I still kind of, you start kind of thinking like, am I going to have them for a long time? Right. Oh my you gosh. Know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like when you love animals, but mm-hmm. fostering. You That's foster. right. Yeah. I See. keep teasing Snake, telling him we're going to get a farm. Yeah. So I could just have all the animals. That's all you need. I That's just, right. I just read uh, Olivia Newton-John's biography. Oh, how was it? It was good. Mm. And she, huge animal lover. I see. So she's, her dream place is like oh, every wow. horse, every dog, every cat that ever needed a home. Amazing. She's like, bring them on. Over. Oh, that's amazing. Like, I want a house like that. Yes, exactly. There we have, you know, anyone that can't find a home, come on over. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. One day. That's right. Yeah. You never know. Life is long. Yeah. How was it when you were writing your memoir? I find it brave that you kind of put everything out there and explained everything. Was it hard for you to kind of put that out there into the world? Well, it was very edited. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of the, all the racy stories were cut out of it, actually. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. Not all of them, but um, it was very heavily edited. And I think that that's probably a good thing in a way, um, you know, legal, legal departments is what they're for. But I grew up in an era in the 80s and 90s, uh, primarily the 80s, I I came of age uh, when it was a different world. And, you know, my little girlfriends and I were we were hypersexualized little girls, basically. Um, you know, and believe me, just go to your local high school today. You will find exactly those same yeah. uh, sociology behaviors in, in kids and in children. And now it's partly worse, partly better. But, um, you know, things, things were just very different. So I had a bit of a... A, a different start. My history does involve being a runaway and, uh, and some of the misadventure that happens. But at the same time, you know, I think that it was, but it, I just think that um, writing that stuff out because I had written songs about many of those experiences already, I assumed it would be easier than it was um, with songwriting. Um, I can be kind of vague, you know, even if I'm writing a song about say sexual assault, I can somehow enshroud it in language. I can make it flowery. Um, but when you write the memoir, at least when I wrote mine, yeah, it was, uh, it was difficult to kind of 
really give a detailed reality, uh, you know, of that lived experience, even though I had thought I was past it or healed from those traumatic experiences, it still kind of opened that up. Um, I had no fear of people reading it until my then boyfriend, Snake, who would go on to become my husband, told me that his mother bought my book and was reading it. And I just said, well, I just want you to know that your mother knows I fucked a pimp. (laughs) (laughs) And I still think it's funny. (laughs) But um, yeah, you know, and and this is the same thing with with the poetry book. Um, yeah, once it's out there, then I go, oh dear, hmm, maybe I should have just, you know, been more vague, but I just have to kind of just let it go out into the world. I know that, um, you know, there are a lot of people who have a more horrendous lived experience than I do. Um, but for me to have the platform to be able to share honestly, uh, some of these things that have occurred in my life, I think is hopefully anyway, will help other people feel like they can share their own story. Yeah. I liked how honest you were. Thank Just you. Put it out there. I read it a while ago. Mm-hmm. And then when I was going to talk to you, I was like, I remember being uncomfortable reading it, but I don't remember why. Cause I think I blocked it all out. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> so then yeah. I got it again and started reading it again. Oh, that's why. Yeah, but yeah. it's it's so great that you put it out there and you, yes, you were 12 years old. You were 13 years old. Mm-hmm. And this is what happened. And you didn't go into all the, how that made you feel. It, it was just like, right. this is what happened. And then that's that happened, right. And then this happened. That's right. I'm curious to know, I assume women are very supportive of that you put it out there and they're like, thank you. Mm-hmm. I'm curious what has been the reaction from men reading it. Uh, you know, not a lot of guys read it, yeah. to be honest with you. And, and I find that my... Find that's unfortunate. Because so I always funny. read books like yours and go, I really wish more men would read this book. And then you well, kind of... I've gotten in hot water from women yeah, frequently about my book because they want me to go back into my youth. And because even though, you know, for us in the seventh grade or the eighth grade, you know, things were like getting gang banged at a party. Ultimately, you know, let's just explain to, you know, to the listener, you know, what we're referring to ultimately is anything on a spectrum from a number of boys, like French kissing with one girl at the party who's going, no, no, don't ha ha ha. You know, it's enshrouded in this atmosphere, but ultimately, you know, really we're talking about things that are against the law. Yeah. You know, this is actually sexual assault. This is actually about consent and and, and things that didn't actually exist yeah. in our vocabulary in 1986. Like this just was not how it was. So girls like us were forced to pick ourselves up, pick our reputations up off the ground and basically carry on you know, into the eighth grade or then whatever it was and, and and kind of just soldier on. And and we were forced to do that and, you know, go back to class and, and kind of, you know, deal with life. And and some of us were kind of able to kind of, and, and a lot of people really weren't. And, you know, I think about it now in hindsight and I think about, you know, if this was my 
my sister, I would be out for murder. Like I would want go yeah. back now, go back now, find these men now who are probably all married. Yeah. They probably all have daughters of their own. Yeah. Go back now. They should be charged, you know? Right. And that was a lot of what I heard from women. And I just thought, okay, you know what? Fair enough. That, that That's how you feel. I, I respect that, but you can't tell me how I have to feel. Yeah. And you can't tell me how I have to be with my trauma, yeah. you know, or that I'm not allowed to get past it or that I'm not allowed to, to, to look into other ways of thinking you know, like forgiveness or like, you know, all these other avenues in my life that happen. Uh, so it did bring up a lot of different conversations for people. Yeah, And I just think. I think the conversation that's been happening the last few years is mm -hmm. that even if people do report it. Right. <laughs> like. Sure. You're put over the coals and you're still blamed oh, for sure. it. Oh, sure. Absolutely. It's, it's like, a deterrent for people because you're still at a party. Yes, absolutely. And like, uh, you went in that room or that's you exactly did this correct. or you did that. And, and that still like, happens. And it yeah. still happens and it still happens. I mean, you know, you can look at any um, any precinct across North America and, and how they have to deal with sexual assault cases uh, for women who are sex workers, for example. And uh, I mean, that's a whole, I'm sure you could do a whole show on the injustice uh, and the variety of miscarriages of justice that happen. But yeah, that's part of, that's part of our society. And, and now, you know, it's very murky and, uh, and, you know, for a little while, it seemed like uh, there was a great uh, empowerment that was happening with, within feminism and, and uh, within women standing up uh and again with the me too movement and it was amazing it was really empowering for people and, and then of course like everything you know it gets diluted things it gets, go back to normal it gets misrepresented and then <clears throat> yeah it, it's just uh uh just to keep those conversations going though i think are amazing and young people today don't generally put up with the same guff that we did yeah. When we were young. So I know for sure that there's a lot of progress that is still being made. Yeah. There mm -hmm. was that expectation. Like sometimes you described in the book that mm -hmm. if someone was nice to you, then that's you're, right. You're like, oh, well, I got to play. That's exactly and, correct. And it's just like that thought process. Oh, sure. 100%. And, you know, it, and it goes back to the beginning of time. Yeah. You know, with the dynamic between the sexes to begin with. Um, but that can happen in any society and yeah. in, you know, in any gender. It's just good to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any advice for young women entering the music industry? It's still kind of male dominated. It really is. It really is. I, I think rock is yeah. for sure. Uh, pop, I think, is seems to be female dominated, but the positions of power still seem to be men. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, it's uh you just really have to have an advocate around whether it's your parent or your or your sibling or your best friend or I was lucky enough to have the same manager from the age of 22 onward. You know, if you have an advocate that is at least able to stand up for you when you're not comfortable, uh, you know, it's just 
it's always going to be daunting. I think in any business that a female goes into, whether it is, I don't know, hospital administration, being a waitress, you know, whatever the case, um, rock and roll probably will always be a little worse because, you know, on one hand, you're expected to look like an Instagram star, you know, and take lots of pictures in your brassiere. Uh, And on the other hand, you know, no one's allowed to touch you. Yeah. Really, that's the truth. They're just not. You know, so it's hard to uh, to navigate all that all the confusion and all the pressure. Uh, But if you don't feel like uh, you can, you know, handle it by yourself, and I don't mean handle it, but if you need to have an advocate with you, take someone with you. Who cares? Yeah. You know, or ask yourself, what would Cardi B do? You know, these girls are, you know, very confident. We were not confident. Yeah. You know, when we were starting out in the music business, and I always just ask myself, you know, of course it's imaginary. I always would think, what would Joan Jett do? You know, like, what would these people, they wouldn't tolerate that promoter talking to them that way. Right. You know, so I think that, you know, to have someone with you uh, will help you get brave if you're not brave enough. Yeah. And I think also setting boundaries, like if you're a young girl and some producer is like, yeah, come meet me at midnight. That's right. They all say it. <laughs> come meet me at midnight. Sure. No. That's right. That's Have right. a breakfast meeting. That's exactly you know, right. Place. You're allowed to do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How do you stay so positive? You're a very positive person. I don't know. No? I get asked that a lot. <laughs> I don't know. I think life's funny. Yeah. I think no matter what happens, um, yeah, we're just usually lucky to be able to like still complete a thought, really, yeah. you know, because we're not guaranteed another day right. ever. And uh, even if, you know, a person is, I don't know, you don't have to be religious or anything like that to believe in, you know, what I call the promise of a new day, which is that, you know what, if you wake up tomorrow, you're probably going to feel better about whatever it is that's bothering you today. Right. Even if it's for five minutes when you first wake up, um, you know, and just just having that knowledge that it could always be worse always helps as well. Right. You know, no matter what's happening to you, you know, there is someone who is just like really in much worse condition than you. Yeah. Whether it's emotionally or or, or what they're experiencing in their lives. And uh, to be able to keep keep going and keep laughing, I think, is uh, is part of being resilient. It'll get you through anything in life, especially the music business. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And is there anything that you haven't done yet that you're still wanting to do yes a million things yes i want to join a roller derby team Ah. uh and but i mean you know that's just me talking because i don't actually want anyone to touch me (laughs) or hit me (laughs) so i'm like i'm the same i'm like can't i just skate (laughs) i've had friends go you should get roller derby no like no but i would not be pushing anyone down no. And you really don't want anyone pushing me down. No, you don't. You don't want to have an elbow in the face. Can I just roller skate? That's right. Yeah. And so maybe it should just be roller skating. Just skating. roller skating. <laughs> right. But uh, yeah, there's stuff like that. There's traveling things that I would love to do. I think that, uh, you know, in this world, traveling really is the, the greatest thing you can ever do. Um, it's hard. It's expensive. And uh, 
I think that if I could, I would probably go to every city I've never been to. And that includes a lot of South America and a lot of Asia. Yeah. Uh, so it'll take me a, probably my whole lifetime to get it all done. Uh, and I would like to go back to university one day. Oh, yeah. And study what? Probably medicine. Really? Probably go into sciences. Just because it's just something that for me would be like outrageously uh, interesting because I've done the arts for so long. Right. Um, I don't think that I could ever complete it. I mean, you know, it's a, a lot of hard things for the brain to do. Yeah. Uh, but I think it would definitely be fun. Huh. I love that uh, Duff, that guitar player Duff. Mm-hmm. He went back to university in the height of Guns N' Roses. Amazing. And now he's like a financial planner for other Not musicians. surprised. I'm Not like, surprised. Perfect. <laughs> yes. Not surprised. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So what is your why? That's my final question. What is my why? why? Because it makes everybody happy. Yeah. That's like an easy answer. And that's like to every question. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Anything else you want to add? Support Toronto Cat Rescue, everybody. And, uh, And support all programs that try and help community cats. Yeah. And go volunteer and foster, even if you might fail at the foster. Yeah. I haven't managed to foster and give them up yet. (laughs) I think it's a good thing. I try. That's right. But I I gave them a good home. (laughs) Perfect. That's all that matters. Yeah. And so where can people find you online? Uh, So Biff Naked on Twitter. I think it's Biff Naked Official on Instagram because, of course, Biff Naked was taken. And I think that? <laughs> I don't know. And I think it's Biff Naked Official on Facebook also, or it might just be Biff Naked. I can't remember because they wouldn't let me use Naked for about five years. Uh, but I think now it's all, you know, solved oh. itself. So just Google it. You'll find yeah. it. It's, you're not Joan Smith. I'm somewhere in there. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for yours. Thanks. She really is an inspiration to many, including myself. In fact, I could have met her a few times over the years, but I kind of chickened out. <laughs> years ago, when I used to go see her all the time whenever she came to Toronto, we had a mutual friend in Robin Black, and I remember at a show he offered to introduce me to her. But I was like, oh, she has a bunch of fans waiting. It's okay. And then later, when I was actually working in the music industry, you know, she'd be be around Canadian Music Week. And another time I was backstage at an award show where she was doing an interview. And I just admired from afar. Or maybe smiled and nodded and said, hi. Because of Biff, I have now expanded my SodaStream addiction. I was always just using it for sparkly water and maybe use like a water enhancer squirt give it some flavor i never even tried the the soda stream like official flavors and yeah today i bought the ginger ale and the cola so i'll be drinking flavored soda stream now so for links and transcript visit sing dance act thrive.com slash zero two nine And if you enjoy this episode or any of the episodes, please pass them on. Share them with your fellow performers and music fans. And make sure you subscribe to never miss an episode. Thanks for listening to Sing, Dance, Act, Thrive. 
Be sure to join the mailing list at dianefoy.com to gain access to exclusive bonus content, a weekly newsletter, and an invitation to our private Facebook group of purpose-driven performing artists and industry influencers. 